Hello, today is Sunday, the 24th of June, 2018, and this podcast is with James Monaghan, whom I met as a fellow speaker at COGX 2018, and is VP of product at Evernim, a startup based out of Utah, building the next generation of identity infrastructure for the world. It's a fascinating project, tackling a big challenge that is designed to enable trusted peer interactions between individuals, organizations, and objects and to give individual true control and ownership of his or her personal data. It's cutting-edge technology. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome, James Monaghan. So I met you at COGX, this wonderful conference on artificial intelligence uh, in London. And James, you are the VP of product, or if I understand it, of Evernim. So tell us more about yourself, James, and uh, what is Evernim? Thanks, Minter. So, um, uh, I, as you said, I'm responsible for product management at Evernim. Um, my career started off in, in software development at the dawn of the uh, mobile industry, actually. And I see many parallels between the early days of uh, rolling out that infrastructure, SMS text messaging, multimedia content delivery, mobile payments, that sort of thing, um, and some of the foundational infrastructure that we're building here in the uh, blockchain and decentralized identity space. And so um, what really attracts me to the work that we're doing at Evernim is that we're, we're building those tools, those essential capabilities for individuals, and institutions to actually take advantage of this new and very powerful kind of identity that we call self-sovereign identity. Self-sovereign identity. So uh, as you and I were chatting a bit beforehand, we had the pleasures of our helicopter in the background. We were talking about how uh, your company is helping us to create a distributed or a a non-centralized, decentralized identity for everybody. So tell us about the process you're going through in order to get that to happen, because there really must be a lot of hurdles in that. We're talking privacy, we're talking about standards... No, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the fundamental problem is quite a simple one. It's that most of the digital identities that you have um, don't really work for you. They work for the institution that issued them to you. And so um, you might typically prove control of an account with a username and password or by, by flashing a physical credential. Um, but those are really only useful in, in one context. And human identity doesn't, doesn't work like that. We met each other in the speaker's lounge at this conference because we both had conference credentials that we were able to obtain um, specifically for that environment. And so um, what we're really trying to do is get people to think about digital identity like they do physical identity where you have a wallet full of credentials from trusted issuers and you can share some or all of the attributes from those credentials um, in a context appropriate way Um, historically that's been very hard to do online because you've had to submit yourself to one of these centralized identity providers the big social networks or a financial institution so on and so forth you're talking about like Google Connect or Facebook Connect that's exactly right where it can be an all or nothing proposition it's do do you want to download this free app okay well you've got to disclose the information about your 200 friends on Facebook Um, you know, I think we've seen some of the effects of, uh, of that, that, that trade-off. So um, we're basically showing that actually it's possible using um, some mathematics, which is not new. I mean, most of the foundational cryptography work that's happening in the blockchain space is based on 20, 25-year-old maths. Um, the, the key thing is that uh, companies are putting these things together in, in novel combinations that give you capabilities that you didn't have before. And so um, we're specifically focusing our energies on the institutions that want to um, take the large install bases and, and, and leverage the trusted reputation they have with their users and actually empower those individuals with a decentralized identity that they can go and use in other contexts. All right, so one of the key things with this point is why would I, 
as an individual want to do this with this Evernim company? I don't know it. What's the, what, why should I trust it? Uh, you know, I've, I've, I have my NHS card. I have my other institutions I kind of believe in. Why would I, or how are you going to manage to convince people to come onto your platform to, to leave their identity with you? That's, that's a great question. And I think the most important point to get across is that it's not really our platform. So um, Evernim didn't set out to build the Evernim identity platform um, because then the proposition would be, well, why would you trust us instead right. of Google or instead of um, the U.S. government or the Chinese government for that matter? Um, you know, all of which might be appropriate for certain contexts. So um, what we've done is basically build a system which is open three different ways. It's based on open standards. So along with a number of other companies in the space, we're collaborating on uh, some critical infrastructure standards for interoperability, so decentralized identifiers, verifiable credentials, some, some very basic building blocks that you can use to have a digital identity and prove things about yourself in a number of contexts. Um, it's based on open source, so a lot of the critical code that you need to uh, use our platform or any of the services built on it is actually um, available completely for free for you to take, deploy, um, extend or embed in your own commercial product if you want to. Um, and it's based on open governance, um, and that means that the, um, the sort of the rules of the road for the network, if you like, the rules around um, what constitutes a trusted service provider and how might you onboard a user who's allowed to have an identity. Um, all of the uh, decision-making behind those rules um, is, is shepherded by a non-profit foundation called the Sovereign Foundation, um, and they, they run that process completely in the open. So the proposition is not, why would you trust Evernim? It's actually, why, why, why wouldn't you trust this, this diverse group of institutions and organizations representing a number of jurisdictions, geographies, and, and vertical industries who've all come together and said, actually, we believe that these fundamental human rights should be present in our identity infrastructure for the future. So um, we're just talking about the, these three elements of open for your business. Tell us a little bit about the technology component. How does one actually create this distributed, decentralized identity? So there's, uh, there's a couple of components to it. The foundational component is a, a purpose-built distributed ledger called the Sovereign Identity Network. And that's, uh, as I said, based on, on open source code that actually lives at the Linux Foundation's Hyperledger project called Hyperledger Indy. Um, but that is essentially a decentralized key management infrastructure. So it's a place where the identifiers for uh, trusted institutions and the corresponding cryptographic keys that you could use to verify a credential they've issued you um, can live. And because it's a, a globally distributed ledger, um, it has a couple of quite useful properties for that. Um, it's something which anyone is able to, uh, to access and read and verify in real time. It's got a, uh, an auditable history, so you're able to tell if there's been any attempt to tamper with those records. Um, and it's, it's decentralized, meaning it's not under the control of any one organization or institution. So it would be difficult to subvert or take it away or, or shut someone out of the system. So we use that, uh, that distributed ledger to store the, the DIDs, the identifiers, which is this open standard I told you about earlier. Um, and we also store the cryptographic material that you need to prove that a credential hasn't been revoked. But that's really the only piece that goes on, on the blockchain itself. If we were to take personal information, your driver's license details, your medical records, so on and so forth, um, even if they were encrypted or hashed and actually put them onto a globally distributed database, that would be certainly uh, convenient. You wouldn't have to store it yourself, but it would be a disaster from a privacy perspective. So the, the second element is actually issuing those verifiable credentials directly to the individual themselves. And that's really the 
the unique feature about a self-sovereign identity model. It's not one where um, organizations are expected to just take you at face value and it's not sort of self-asserted identity, um, but it's self-sovereign in the sense that you actually own and control those credentials and you control um, who they're shared with and under what conditions. Is that not a little bit like Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies where you have a specific password that is yours and so you have some kind of identifier that is your secret password, so you have the one Uber password that allows you to enter your identity? It's not. It's got some similarities with that, um, except that in our model, you don't have uh, one identity that, that follows you everywhere. You actually have one for every single relationship that you have. Yeah. And that's really important because you don't want the equivalent of a giant super cookie that, that tracks all of your interactions, both both in the real world and online. And so um, unlike uh, a lot of these centralized solutions uh, and, and unlike Bitcoin, in fact, um, we give you uh, what we call a pairwise identifier, so one for every relationship that you have. So yes, your, your wallet does require you to store your private keys that you can use to prove control of those identifiers, um, but you also store the personal information, so the verifiable credentials themselves. Um, while they may also exist in the ins- issuing institution's database, so your university might keep a copy of the degree certificate, um, they would directly transfer to you a digitally verifiable copy of that, which you can either uh, share with an employer, for example, if you're applying for a job, or just disclose certain attributes. So maybe I would get a uh, get a discount somewhere for, for proving that I, I was a member of a certain institution. I don't have to relieve, uh, reveal my name um, or my address or any of the other pieces of information right. that might be present on there. I can just show the fact that I, I, I meet the necessary standard to qualify. So the, I mean, the, you, I presumably, you're, you're obviously have thought a lot about this, but there's not a way to have one identity where you give certain rights to access according to whether it's your doctor or your pharmacist or the uh, grocer. But you you have, you have one with a grocer, one with a pharmacist, and one with a doctor, and each of those means I have to have a separate identity that allocates the information that I want each of those different parties to have. Well, let's say, uh, much like it is in the physical world, it's a context-appropriate identity model that's, mm-hmm. that's based on what it is you need to, to reveal about yourself to have a particular interaction. So you're more or less anonymous to your grocer. Um, if you're a regular customer, you're pseudonymous. They, they still know you as the person who visits every Monday and buys the same sorts of things. Um, but actually, they don't, they don't necessarily need to know who you are with any great degree of certainty right. to be able to conduct business. Right. Um, with your doctor, on the other hand, they have a, a, a very good reason to know um, exactly who you are and whether you're entitled to the sort of care that you're, you're receiving um, and when you, whether you've had any uh, types of care that might impact the decisions they might make on a, on a medical basis. So um, our, our system doesn't require you to be burdened with having to maintain these separate identities, but it gives you that flexibility, just like you're used to in the physical world, to share what is appropriate for a particular context. And done right, the tools that you'll use to manage these relationships will automate almost all of that for you. So you'll receive a simple request that says, um, this person is, is requesting to see the following action attributes about you, you'll have a quick look and see if it makes sense and you'll be able to approve it in real time. So to make it easier for me and the listeners, what is the problem Evernim is solving for? So ultimately, the relationships that we're forced to have when we take our basic humanity online are very undignified and unfulfilling. Um, we're not able to, to transact um, effortlessly. We're not able to be taken at face value, um, whether that means strongly identified or, in fact, uh, to be anonymous where it's appropriate. Um, and that gets in the way of social, political, and economic inclusion. Um, and it really it, it leaves a lot of the potential that the, the Internet was originally conceived with um, unrealized. And so, uh, you know, writ large, our objective actually is to enable institutions and individuals to have this, the, this new relationship, essentially, that, that, was, that was promised at the dawn of the Internet to actually transact effortlessly in a, a strongly secure and privacy-preserving manner. 
All right, let's talk about your business model and where and, and your clients and where you're earning, how you're earning money. And also, I'd like you to know a little bit about the size of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, Evernim is headquartered in Salt Lake City in Utah, and uh, we're just about uh, 65 full-time staff and, uh, and a handful of contractors as well. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm based here in London where we have a, have a small team as well. Um, and so the, the company for the first uh, several years of its existence was, was focused almost exclusively on building out this, this open source code. So it looked, I guess, a lot like a charitable endeavor from, in, that, in that regard. But uh, we, And we still do make a, a very large contribution to the various uh, open standards and open source uh, projects that we contribute to. Um, but actually, uh, Evanim's received considerable interest from organizations that share our values, essentially, that, that want to... Um, remake the way they're interacting, whether it's with with customers or with their other business partners, or maybe they're deploying a new product that can perform uniquely well because it has these capabilities. And so, um, at the moment, we uh, we're sort of transitioning from a phase where we were doing lots of proof of concept and pilot projects, um, primarily based on that open source code. Um, right now, we're we're rolling out um, for, for the early adopting organisations a, a paid for product which allows them to rapidly deploy these credential issuing and verifying capability and bake that into their business processes. Right. So um, types of organizations, you, you said to me earlier that you have some foundation. What type of, you have NGOs that are, are there any of those sort of associations or I'm thinking of the EFF or others who would be interested in supporting with you? Yes, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a good point. So we talked about the, the Sovereign Foundation earlier, which is the uh, non-profit foundation that actually um, provides a level of governance for the, uh, the Sovereign Identity Network itself. And they, uh, they recruit and maintain a network of what we call stewards, which are the organizations that actually run the nodes on the Sovereign blockchain. And those stewards are drawn from a, a diverse group, which is designed to be both uh, geographically, jurisdictionally, and, uh, and market diversity. So we have um, financial institutions, we have... Um, large consulting companies we have uh, airlines and we have uh, healthcare companies we also have small startups we have ngos and non-profits who are working on on, uh, projects for displaced and and vulnerable people as well and really the idea is that sovereign's charter is identity for all and so we're trying to ensure that you have a decentralized governance model that's really reflective of of that aim and and isn't just uh, isn't just going wherever the electricity is cheapest which is often the case in in public blockchains that have proof of work algorithms deciding who gets to run the nodes just like uh, the BBC has this uh, notion of delivering BBC where it's needed most as well as where it's wanted, presumably in, in this type of identity situation, there are places which want it a little bit along the lines of, you know, you were just talking about where the money is, mm-hmm. and then where it's needed. How is that being approached? Because you know, where it's needed isn't necessarily where you're going to get paid. And like for the BBC, providing BBC service to parts of Russia is a hard part to get but that's where they need it. Well, you know, one of the great things about uh, decentralized technology in, in general is that, um, it, you know, it has certain uh, censorship resistance properties that, that make it more effective to deploy into uh, what you might describe as hostile environments than, than others. Um, but, you know, we, we found that even in uh, some use cases that you sort of might traditionally think might not be super open to uh, privacy-preserving technologies, actually, the benefits typically are seen to outweigh outweigh the cost even, even there. So we are actually seeing that, you know, e- even in, say, a... Uh, a refugee program where um, typically there's a lot of sensitivity around you know who are these people where have they come from sure. do they do they mean us good or ill um, what are their true motives for for, for migrating um, you know you need to balance there the needs of the of the individual to be able to access humanitarian services to be able to establish a path to residency uh, and the legitimate needs of the state to be able to to, to vet who they are um, and we found that actually centralized solutions 
don't do a great job of balancing those needs because with all that personal information in one great pot, um, it's very easy to cull through that and say, well, this, this group looks like they came from a particular sect that actually has fallen out of favor with the ruling party or, you know, that this, this person um, that doesn't have the right sort of training and actually so we're, we're going to put them to the back of the queue and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of you're already so vulnerable when you're in a situation like that, that actually um, submitting yourself to that sort of digital serfdom is, 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 a, is a double indignity, frankly. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to people that have been on the ground in some of those camps and they say that people um, will literally burn off their fingerprints because they're so afraid of the consequences of the types of identity infrastructure that they've, they've heard rumored are, are being deployed. And so, you know, we, we feel very strongly that, you know, even in environments like that, um, there, there, there needs to be privacy, there needs to be control. Um, you, you, you can balance that effectively, the needs of the individual against the needs of the, the institution that's providing mm-hmm. the service. So I, I read about a group in Sweden that's called uh, something refugee, but it's also using the blockchain <coughs> to verify refugee identities. And I, you were talking about one of the things that interests me is also the creation of a standard. Mm-hmm. Because in the end of the day, the one who wins, you know, the standard probably wins out. And yet in this, there's sort of a missionary element to it. It's all open. Uh, how, how do you go about standardizing your technology? And, and are there competing platforms that you're running up against, maybe that are less open, more closed, the usual type of open, closed battle? Well, what's, what's great is that a lot of the companies in the space are um, genuinely committed to uh, helping to lay this foundation collaboratively. Um, I was on a panel earlier on with, um, with two companies that you could characterize as, as competitors of Evernim, but actually um, we're all just taking a slightly different route to market to what is ultimately the same, the same end goal. And one of these companies is focused much more on the, uh, the consumer end, and actually they've, they've developed a really novel um, wearable biometric ring that you can use to authenticate yourself. Um, the other company is focused on building out developer tools so that, um, that the next great uh, social media application or peer-to-peer lending application or so on and so forth might be built using their infrastructure. Um, as we mentioned earlier, um, Evernim is interested in those things, but we're, at the moment we're going to the places where you already get digital identities. They're just not ones that work very effectively for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're finding that those organizations are, are quite willing to help sort of port their um, put their identity model over. But what all these three companies have in common, actually, is that we're part of um, a lot of the same communities, the Decentralized Identity Foundation, the World Wide Web Consortium, and we're collaborating on a lot of the same standards. So there's the FIDO standard and, and WebAuthn, which is a, a way of remotely authenticating yourself on the web. There's the Decentralized Identification Standard and the Verifiable Credential Standard that we talked about earlier on that's happening at the W3C. And so really, um, we're not hoping that the whole world adopts Evernim standards. What we're hoping is the whole world adopts a privacy-preserving model for identity, which actually allows us to significantly grow the size of the market out there. Um, and then it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. We don't need it to be Evernim's platform that's adopted everywhere. Actually, it would be great if there was some, some Evernim deployments, some IBM deployments, some Blockstack deployments, some Uport deployments, and so on and so forth. Because this really does, you know, when you multiply it out, you've got every individual, every institution, and every connected device. Um, and when you, you matrix in the different relationships they've all got, um, that's going to take all of us and a lot of companies that, that probably haven't even been founded yet to actually go and, and remake the infrastructure that way. James, you mentioned at the outset that you're beginning in mobile and how it seemed like it's uh, a same type of environment with what you're doing now. Uh, maybe you could maybe make a little bit more specific what is the similarity and then B, what are the lessons that you learned that you can take out of the mobile you know, journey into this new one you own. 
Well, so the the similarity and the biggest one is is simply just the that sense of uh, unrealized potential and that the really rapid rate of change. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of the the early really popular mobile applications were fairly trivial. I mean, you could you could download a a picture of Mickey Mouse to have as, as the wallpaper on your on your phone when the first color phones came out. Um, there are all kinds of, of applications like that. But actually, you know, the, the company I worked at uh, enabled you to pay your uh, your traffic congestion charges by sending a quick text message. Um, and you know, you fast forward today. And obviously, we take mobile commerce for granted. But it was a lot of those sort of early adopter companies doing seemingly um, seemingly trivial use cases, but requiring really quite sophisticated foundational technology. And if you if you have the right line of sight, if you can see how these things join up, um, I think you get a sense of, of what the the potential that can be unlocked there. Um, but the cautionary tale I would say is that you know we saw. Um, with some of the behavior that the mobile operators exhibited in the, um, the later stages of that industry, we saw um, you know, far too much centralization, frankly. I mean, I think mobile operators had the opportunity to become major players in mobile payments and also in, in digital identity. Um, and they unfortunately haven't quite realized the, the potential. They haven't really leveraged that trusted relationship they have with end users, the fact they have a billing relationship, the fact they have a, a secure cryptographic device that every single mobile subscriber has, um, and they have an always-on connection to that user, um, that's, a, that's a very, very powerful thing. Instead, the, um, you know, the, the payments uh, infrastructure is all going to the, the big OEMs, the, the Apples and the, and the Googles and the Samsungs of the world. Um, and in the mobile identity infrastructure, I think we're seeing that go to, um, go to some of those platforms. I mean, obviously, Apple has a, has a big proposition there. Um, but also, it's being developed by vendors of, of apps for individuals like, like ourselves and, and Newport and Blockstack and others. What does the future look like if if Evernim uh, is fully successful? Are we we are, what and and is it really for consumers to benefit, or is it also much more about or governments and companies to benefit? So I think I think everybody will benefit. I mean, studies have been done, you know, as as, as long ago as the the early two thousands, showing the many many billions of dollars that are wasted with sort of conventional means of identity assurance Um, and at the end of the day those 20 questions you answer when you apply for a loan or that username and password you type in when you sign up for a dating application these are these are basic checks you know are you are you a human being are you a resident of this country are you entitled to this sort of service Um, and it creates this this sense of alienation um, and it forces you into these these balkanized ecosystems like like Facebook and Google, where um, you know, sure, you could argue a lot of good has come out of that, but also um, by by having such a large captive audience and by having um, an unreasonable degree of control over what that audience is subjected to, I think we've had some unintended, not entirely great consequences there. Um, you know, what I think a, a different kind of infrastructure will allow is is far more fluid movement, essentially, both both in the real world and and in the digital world, and, and greater social, political, and economic inclusion. And that's going to be great for everybody. Businesses will save a fortune. Governments will have greater engagement with their citizenry, and we'll, and we'll be able to save a huge amount on the infrastructure costs of providing certain basic public services. Um, and as individuals, whether it's uh, whether it's commerce we're trying to transact, or crossing a border, or just uh, establishing a serendipitous relationship at a conference, um, I think we'll have finally at our, at our hands the, the tools uh, at our disposal that we're used to having in the physical world um, but, but multiplied by the true potential that the internet has to offer. James I want to finish on one last area you and I are mentioning a little bit before and obviously you're, you're fully aware of what's going on. I was in Tallinn uh, a little while ago talking about how they've created a singular identity, a singular citizen identity that's able to have your financial, your health your tax well, I financial bank, I meant, as well as all other elements of your 
data on your singular card or your singular identity. Mm. Uh, in Scandinavia, they also have good, and in Holland, they have a, a strong singular, well, not fully singular, but a strong identity card. What is it going to take for the likes of the United Kingdom, uh, United States of America, and elsewhere to adopt your platform in a similar way? So the Nordics have, have quite a good advantage in that sort of culturally there's there's quite a strong bond of trust between the, the citizenry and the central government there. And the government repays that trust by, um, by actually opening a very uh, transparent and open uh, infrastructure. So... Yes, I do have uh, one uh, Estonian identity that I can use to access a, a plethora of government services, and that might feel like an invasion of privacy. But on the flip side, um, as a citizen, I would be able to go in there and actually see the name of each government official who's looked at my records. And if I believe um, that that has been uh, without due cause, I can actually um, raise an objection. Um, that that same balance does not exist in uh, in the United States and the United Kingdom, where you know historically the citizenry has been a bit more reticent to to trust the central government. Um, you know, we have seen, um, you know, in the U.S., for example, it's actually illegal to have a, a single healthcare identifier. They, they had to pass a specific law to prevent that from happening um, because they were they were so worried about the consequences. You know, here in the U.K., we've had um, billions of pounds invested, but actually several initiatives systematically struck down um, against a national um, identity card, despite the many economic arguments for having it. Because I think you know the the specter of that sort of infrastructure being misused um, still looms very large in, in people's minds, and you know the the limited steps that uh, the UK has taken, for example, the uh, the, the government verify scheme that's a, uh, a centralised but federated identity that you can use to access certain government services. Um, they've run into some real problems as they try and expand that to the private sector, um, because as a centralised service, um, the, the sort of the, the stakeholder management that's required to expand that out to include, say, uh, say banks, for example, and uh, and, and retail providers. Um, is is just is just untenable, and and also it's not it's not really the government's business to um, to, to run that type of infrastructure. So, um, what we're finding when we talk to um, issuers of root identity credentials, and we've done projects with um, we're doing birth registrations um, in in the U.S. Actually, we've spoken to a couple of Department of Motor Vehicles in different states in the U.S. Um, and uh, you know, here in the U.K., we've spoken to some of the national identity provider companies that are, are part of the Verify scheme, um, and actually, we're, we're hearing a pretty common pattern, which is that. They, the thing that they're really good at is that identity assurance, is, is using their reputation and their process and their levels of assurance to make a strong claim about someone's identity. And what would really unlock the potential, what would make that credential super valuable, is if that could be put at the disposal of the citizen. So they could use that in whatever context they happen to be to prove whatever is relevant for that context. And so if, if you want to do that, if you want a system with those properties, you pretty much have to go to a decentralized identity model. No amount of, of federation where you've got this mesh of interconnected systems is going to be able to scale so that I can just as effectively prove my age at the newsagent when I'm buying a packet of cigarettes, for example, using a digital identity as I can by, by quickly flashing my driver's license because there's no way that Joe's Corner Shop is going to be able to plug into some big monolithic central system, nor, nor should it, right? Mm. So so if that's the sort, of, the sort of use case that we want to be able to everything from opening a bank account to to buying some cigarettes or a lottery ticket then then we need to recognize the scale of that undertaking and the only way to achieve that efficiently is with decentralized infrastructure so you know we're we're finding that um, there's a good amount of traction in these in these types of institutions for for running meaningful pilots and actually getting the learning that's required to deploy something like that at a national scale so when you go into a company james or into a institution like the dmv 
or whomever, who, who, do, you, who do you ask for an interview, a, a meeting with? Who are the people they are going to say, All right, I get it, that's what I need? I, that, for me, it's 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 fairly foreign concept. Well, so the, the mixed blessing, the good thing and the bad thing about being a quote-unquote blockchain company in the, uh, in the year 2018 is that actually um, people come find you. So um, there's, there's an almost unlimited amount of kind of blockchain and innovation budget out there for running interesting projects like this. So um, we have a lot of the right people um, knocking on the door and actively trying to engage. Um, you know, what's sometimes hard is, is telling who just has budget to do a project versus who is like really trying to solve a problem and who actually has a path to be able to deploy this in, right. in market. And some, some are just doing the, the new shiny object thing and, and others have a real issue. Yeah, and that's, you know, to, to be quite frank, that's an existential threat for an early stage company like us, right? We, we can't afford to waste too many cycles mm-hmm. with, with companies and, or, or institutions that aren't serious. Um, but, but the good news is that I think people have done a lot of early experimentation. I mean, you know, Evanim has been running projects for a number of years now with these organizations and we're building up a track record and, you know, the, the analysts are starting to cover this space. It's becoming not the, the breakout crazy thing, but entire tracks at conferences now are, are devoted to not just, not just blockchain, but blockchain identity or decentralized identity specifically. So it's becoming a more mainstream topic and, and the cadence of the conversation is, is very much now, okay, like what, what would make sense for a company like us to, to go and, and start getting our feet wet in a meaningful way? And it's, it's much easier to engage like, uh, in, in a discussion like that. Brilliant, James. So uh, for anyone who's interested in following up more about Evernim and about you, uh, what's the best way to get in touch? Right, well, so you should definitely um, visit, our, visit our website. And so that's uh, www.evernim.com, E-V-E-R-N-Y-M.com. Um, you can also learn more about the Sovereign Foundation and the excellent work that they're doing in the nonprofit space at uh, sovereign.org, S-O-V-R-I-N.org. Um, and uh, feel free to follow me on, on Twitter. My handle is at James underscore Monaghan. Lovely. Thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to uh, seeing more about this um, blockchain identity, distributed identity. Thanks very much for coming on the show, James. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Make colors blend and look ugly in the end.
Friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.